uh, Last Temptation of Christ, also known as the whitest Jesus you know. <laughs> the whitest Jesus you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll see it. Uh... Welcome to VCR, a vintage cinema rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. And I'm still here. Blake hasn't kicked me off the podcast yet. <laughs> but you're on thin ice, damn yeah, it. Yeah, I know. And I'm Michael. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is part two covering The Last Temptation of Christ, doing our deep dive on it. A very controversial film coming from a very controversial adaptation of a novel coming from a not so controversial one of the greatest directors of all time martin scorsese yeah martin scorsese's bay like nobody nobody has anything bad to say about that guy no he's fantastic yeah um lovely guy yeah Anyways. so this is this is the last part of our series of martin scorsese films for now uh doing director's month in may for him and his upcoming movies so which I'm quite excited about. Me too. And so we wanted to do something that, or you decided that we should do something. <laughs> wow, I liked how you immediately were like, no, this was Michael's fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we covered Cape Fear in the first part. We're covering uh, this here. We're kind of trying to get away from the straight crime gangster movies that Martin Scorsese is really known for and, and dive into some of the other his other filmography because there's a lot there, especially like in his earlier years when he was kind of trying to, starting to still figure out like what he wanted to be i've heard that the 80s was a weird time for scorsese yeah where like he didn't really have as many hits but it sounds like he was also kind of experimenting a lot well and and there's a lot of things in this film that we see kind of him replicate in other films in terms of directing style narration montages although i have a bone to pick about that uh, okay for later in this film or for later in the discussion but yeah, it, it was kind of interesting in that sense to see, like, Martin Scorsese's touch on something like this, a, a religious film about the the telling, the retelling of the story of Jesus, but also, like, being more of a character study. We really dive into all of this in the first episode, so if you want to go check that out, uh, it's posted everywhere where you're watching this or listening to this now. And this is kind of our deep dive, spoilers, full discussion of, of this movie. And with that being said, I think we can probably just dive into it now. I think uh, we sure can. And so I, I guess like let's start in front of the camera and work our way back. And in that sense, I want to talk about the first act of the film and yes, how basically we start off with uh, Jesus as the carpenter in Judea, uh, and he's kind of got this internal uh, conflict between wanting what he wants in life versus what god wants for him in life and and that's kind of really the opening of the film is framed i i thought this was actually somewhat of an interesting start to the film yeah i think i i mentioned this there was one moment in the first 10 minutes that actually really made me sit up Uh and like pay attention and i have a feeling it was the same moment go for it yeah um finding out that jesus is actually making crosses for the romans right yeah, that's so. The whole thing is Jesus, a carpenter, is the only Jew in town, I guess, who's willing to make crosses for the Romans. And there's, um, I guess, this is kind of when the Jewish people are starting to revolt against the Roman occupation or rule. So Judas is a freedom fighter for the Jewish rebels. And yeah, Jesus is considered. There's a really interesting scene where. Jesus drags the cross behind his back through the streets so they can crucify Lazarus and people are like spitting at him and calling him a traitor and blah, blah, blah. And it's a very interesting parallel to how his life will end upon the same cross. It adds a bit of, I guess you could call it poetic justice. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was extremely interesting. And also, you know, for the religious people watching, this might really upset them yeah it's it's a great way to start the film and upset people yeah. <laughs> that's for sure i um, guess uh, you can't fault the movie for playing its cards so soon yeah for sure for sure what i what i also really like about the beginning of the film is it's that it really kind of lays out the internal conflict that jesus has like right off the bat and we get some good narration here i think the narration's utilized relatively well and kind of getting into the mind of jesus and his fears and doubts about basically becoming god Um, so he sort of implies i do have to immediately withdraw the praise i just gave this movie though because 
as interesting as this part is, I wish they'd done more with it. In what sense? I just wish they'd elaborated more on him kind of working with the Romans. And like he sort of implies later on that he's doing this as a way to piss off God deliberately. Right. That's because maybe he feels that if he pisses off God, God won't make him the Messiah. Right. So there's kind of like that that thing that everybody has where it's like almost like procrastination, but it's like almost like in a self harm type of way. Self sabotage almost. Yeah, yeah. Like everybody's done that and and so that kind of makes him a much more relatable person and i think that's an interesting way to frame things i mean this is already a two hour and 45 minute movie i i don't know if i need much more (laughs) um backstory like into what jesus is up to with the romans at this point in time and i guess that's we meet judas in the first scene and that's the big bone of contention is that you know judas is a freedom fighter and he hates jesus for being a basically like a a quizzling even like, though he's actually friends with him. Um, right. Like, they're they're friends, but he there's a bit of hatred that he has towards his friend because his friend is helping the Romans, and he's like this, like you said, Jewish freedom fighter, mm-hmm. essentially. And maybe we should get into Judas, because he's almost... I would argue that, like, the whole movie is really about the two of them. Yeah. Jesus and Judas. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll give you that. Like, there's, there's a couple other relationships, like... Uh, Mary Magdalene is also very important to this film too, but but yeah, Harvey Keitel's portrayal of Judas is is very important to this film. Yeah. Um, so where where do you want to start? Let's recapping a bit. So the, again, Jesus is a quizzling about to become a Messiah. Judas is a Jewish freedom fighter, and they're friends, but they're Judas is extremely mad at him, and then. Early in the movie, Jesus kind of goes off to like a monastery and he sort of kind of accepts what he has to do. And then Judas confronts him and Judas actually has orders to kill him. Right. And Jesus convinces him not to and he convinces Judas to follow him with the idea of being that if he ever strays from the path, then Judas will kill him. Yeah. And it becomes, but the conflict between them continues because Jesus preaches, you know, that love, we need, yeah, love. We're going to kill him with kindness. We're going to save the world through love. But Judas, and what's interesting about Judas is like he's essentially a soldier. Yeah. Like he preaches in this film's language the axe. Like right. we need to defeat the Romans through combat. Like we need to fight. Right. And they constantly have this back and forth where Jesus wants to use love to defeat their enemies and Judas wants to use the axe. And. Yeah, the movie kind of continues from there. And and that's kind of also like how Judas is portrayed as well. Like he's portrayed as a tough guy. And they say that several times like, oh, you're the toughest guy in, in the group kind of thing, right? Yeah, Jesus actually deliberately says like, you're the strongest of all my friends. Right, exactly. And that's something that I think Judas needed to hear at those specific times as well. But in terms of... Um... Well, there's maybe something else we should say about the relationship. Yeah. Let's say it's a very homoerotic relationship. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I can't, you can't have not noticed that, but... Yeah, there's a little bit there, for sure. And it, like, maybe, again, comparing to Ben-Hur, like the, between Judah Ben-Hur and, um, I'm blanking on the... The, the, main, the bad guy? Yeah, the yeah. Bad guy's name. Right well, this now, one but... was like way more over the top, I found. A little bit. Yeah. Well, like, you know, there's a scene where, like, they sleep together and they're, like, literally in each other's arms. Right. And I was like, all right. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) Um, Um, Yeah, and even just, like, you know, the famous kiss of Judas is Judas identifies Jesus to the Roman authorities with the kiss on the cheek. Right. In this movie, it's, like, full-blown on the lips. Yeah, it's like a... (laughs) It's a almost big damn kiss, but... Um, and I don't know what that would, you know, maybe this is part of the reason why this movie is so incendiary, but it's also kind of like, you know, Jesus also has this relationship with Mary Magdalene, but I almost found that like, they make a big song and dance better at the beginning of the movie. They have a really long, interesting scene, but then she's almost kind of an afterthought through the rest of the movie. Yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah, like it's almost, they almost kind of forgot about her yeah they just couldn't come up with like i don't know if it was they're missing the dialogue there or, or maybe what. there were a couple cut scenes yeah and just, like she does kind of show up at the end but only in a very minuscule way and yeah. like there's the famous there's a story in the bible where 
the Jews are going to stone an adulteress. And in this movie, which I thought was interesting, instead of that, they're going to stone Mary Magdalene for being a prostitute, essentially. Right. So that was an interesting way to bring her in, but then she barely does anything in the movie. Yeah, they just kind of, like, lost, like, what to do with her after that. I I saw the same thing, actually. But I want to move back to Harvey Keitel first. He was actually nominated for a Razzie for this film. I saw that too, yeah. uh, Supporting actor. What I'll say about this is I think that Harvey Keitel is miscast in this film. Um, You think so? I think so. And and so here's the thing is Judas is supposed to be a tough guy. And they've hammered that home that he is the toughest guy around kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I think that Judas needed to have some more underlying emotion and inner conflict and and that to be presented more and i don't know that harvey keitel had the emotional depth to the performance that i think judas needed for this film to make his character a little bit more compelling to me see i see where you're coming from but i don't know that i agree Mm -hmm. because i thought again it was pretty obvious to me at least that early on this movie is really about the relationship between jesus and judas and i kind of could see where the conflict was i do have an issue though with the direction the story took in the sense that okay so i mean this is a spoiler episode i'm spoiling it yeah Um, yeah, go for it so later on in the movie jesus tells judas that he needs to betray him and that he needs to die on the cross right right and judas won't do it because you know he loves jesus yep and jesus says like basically says he's like you always said you would kill me if i strayed from the path like i need you he basically says i need you to do this because you're my strongest friend you're the only one i trust to do this and judas kind of reluctantly agrees to do it and now like i should also say that like again i'm a filthy casual as we've already established (laughs) but like i've always found judas interesting because like again i don't know much about the bible but i do know that like even the bible can't really agree on why Judas betrayed Jesus. Right. I think there's multiple conflicting accounts. Yeah, so like, I did I did in my back reading read, look at that up because I, I also kind of agree with you. It was interesting how his betrayal came to be because Jesus essentially was like, I need you to go bring the Romans here to have me crucified. Right. And like, I think one book of the Bible just says like the devil entered him and another one just, he just did it out of greed. Yeah. But like in all versions, I think he hangs himself out of grief afterwards. Right. So I don't know if there's ever like biblical scholars that say that like Judas was in on it and he did it on Jesus's orders. In which case, why did he have to hang himself afterwards? But like, so I think it's interesting, but I think the movie would have been stronger and more interesting if Judas had just betrayed him for his own reasons like i don't know how they would have done that like maybe maybe judas just decides that jesus he doesn't like the direction christ's ministry is taking him or like maybe you know they need the axe and they're not going to get it with jesus so they have to axe him essentially i just i don't don't know because like so here's the thing is if is if you if you change the final part of the movie i think you have to completely change the whole character arc of judas because judas because the way that judas is presented judas is basically like if if you're not with us you're against us and i will kill you but then by the end he's like okay like you know you're you're pretty with us like i i I understand your message and i don't want to have my friend killed kind of thing and so like the way that his character arc goes like i think having him reluctant to rat jesus out and and Jesus have to like push him along was necessary for this story, mm-hmm. um, because I don't know that I maybe I don't I... know that I would believe like with the prior two hours to, of the film I don't know that I would believe him just suddenly ratting him out for like a couple shekels or something. Yeah, I think yeah, I just maybe just from a storytelling perspective, I think it would have been more compelling if. Judas betrayed Jesus for his own reasons, but then again, you're right. It's a very different movie that way. Yeah. So and, I, and I will. You have, to, you have to build those reasons in, or else it's going to feel like a a sudden cheap twist. Right. Um, and like you said, it, that's what happens in the Bible, but we're not talking necessarily about Bible historical accuracy. We're talking about the movie itself. Yeah. Exactly. And, but that does kind of. I guess if you do that though, you don't get what happens in the third act, which we both found pretty interesting. So. Mm-hmm. Like, early in the movie, Jesus goes into the desert and he gets, you know, he has to grapple with the devil 
the right, devil. It feels like the forty days of famine or something. Like yeah, forty that, days of fasting, and yeah. like the devil appears to him three times and offers him three different things, which happens in the Bible. Yeah, and then at the end of the movie, Jesus gets on the cross and not having a good time. Yeah, and then a little girl claiming to be a guardian angel shows up and tells him that God doesn't want him to sacrifice himself and that it's all good, baby. Like, come on down. Right. And so then Jesus. And, and obviously, like, I don't know about you, but I immediately was like, okay, this is the devil. Like, there's, <laughs> there's no way. Yeah. That, like, like this, this story is anything else but this is the actual devil. And and this right. Is, I mean, the movie is named the Last Temptation. Of so the here movie. it is. It's the Last Temptation. The literal Last Temptation in the last forty minutes of the film. We built two hours to this point. Yeah. And what's interesting, though, is Jesus falls for it. He gets off the cross and he goes to live a normal life with Mary Magdalene. he He essentially chooses the easier option, right? There's either dying on the cross or going to live like... A normal... A normal life. Yeah. Yeah. So then he starts living a normal life. And what's interesting, though, is that his normal life isn't... It's good, but it's not great. Like Mary Magdalene dies. average. Yeah. She dies in just randomly and then... There is that really interesting scene, though, with Harry Dean Stanton where Saul, now Paul, is preaching about Jesus. Right. And Willem Dafoe, as Jesus, confronts him and says, that's not what happened. I didn't die on the cross. Like, I'm right here, bro. And Saul basically, I forget what he says specifically, but he says, like, you know, your story means more to people. He's basically, he kind of even says, like, I don't care if your story is true or not. It means a lot to people and they need it. So I'm just going to keep telling people it. Yeah. So it's a really, actually, that scene in and of itself is almost the most important scene of the movie because it's essentially someone saying like, hey, man, I don't care if your story's true. I'm going to keep telling it the way I want to tell it. Like, it's almost very like postmodern in the sense that like, you know, I don't care what happened. I'm going to tell your story the way people need to hear it. Right. So, and then we flash forward again and Jesus is on his deathbed and the world has kind of descended into chaos and anarchy. And Yeah, as as basically Jerusalem is being invaded and raided and sacked. By the Romans, yeah. yeah. And then the apostles show up finally after all these years and then who just never casually realized that jesus was still alive (laughs) (laughs) that's the only small thing where i was like how did you guys not know how did you guys not put the two and two together right yeah and then one of the more compelling scenes in the movie is that judas finally shows up at the end and he basically he specifically says you broke my heart he's like you didn't keep up your end of the promise like I betrayed you like you wanted and you wouldn't die on the cross and now the world is blah, 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 blah. So Jesus... Instead, you you chose like the uh, selfish way out and and lived your own life here. Yeah, so then Jesus realizes what he's done and that he failed the temptation. So he literally crawls out of his deathbed and crawls up to a hill and begs God for another chance and then God does a cosmic rewind like (laughs) Superman in the first movie and... uh, he dies on the cross. Right. And then the movie just ends. Yeah. He just, what does Jesus say? He's like, it is accomplished. And then he dies. And then the credits roll. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot I want to break down here, actually, a lot of what you just talked about. The one thing that I'll say, so part of why this ending was so interesting to me is because of one of my favorite films of the last five years, The Green Knight. Um, oh, yeah. I like, I like that one. So spoilers, if you haven't seen The Green Knight, maybe you're fast forward a couple minutes here because i'm going to talk about the last it's a really good movie it's a really good movie i really really like that one a lot but so assuming that you're you're fast forwarded if you uh haven't seen the green knight this movie ends very similarly to the ending of the green knight wherein we get to see the alternative history of of one person's choice and how that affects everyone around them I knew kind of instantly as as soon as the guardian angel who was really Satan pulled him off the cross there, I was like, oh, we're about to do a green knight. Um, You're right. <laughs> and and I was right. Actually, green knight was doing a last temptation of yeah, Christ. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was doing a last temptation of the Christ. And and maybe it's because I'd already seen the green knight. It felt more obvious in this case. And also, again, the name of the movie is the last, last temptation, temptation of, Christ. of Christ. Yeah. But anyway, I, I think that for me, like that makes it more interesting because I'm always interested in in thinking about and seeing like an alternative history of a character. And, you know, sometimes video games do this or maybe comics do this. Um, Where it's like if you'd made 
a different choice at this fork in the road, how different your life would have turned out. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that this is something that as as human beings, like this is something that we find interesting as as storytelling pieces. And I thought it was used quite effectively here to like show that, you know, Jesus could have lived an, an all right life, not being sacrificed on on the cross for everybody kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I will say that I, I enjoyed the Green Knight a lot more as a film. Yeah, because, um, I did too. And the Green Knight, like I wasn't expecting that from it either because the way, so the way this one portrays it, it's like, uh, I will say, so what I'll say about this one is I thought it was really interesting that it wasn't just a vision per se and that, you know, he, it felt like he was actually like literally pulled off the cross by Yoink. the, satan and then given this opportunity to live this alternative imagine life. being 25 and making a different choice and then living out your entire life yeah and then god shows up on your deathbed and says you were supposed to make this other choice at 25 so we need to rewind and do over yeah like yeah I, I think that's that's such an interesting idea and i think it was executed relatively well yes i agree now again, this is the problem of the movie that I had, where the I think the this movie could have used much better pacing. Uh, yeah. And and so the problem was is that this is the last like 30, 40 minutes of the film, probably about thirty minutes. I was gonna say like twenty. Yeah, I don't even 20. think that. I don't even think that long. Um, but anyway, so so to build up to this point, which is what the film is all about building up to, what the title of the film is, at this point, like I wasn't as invested in the film to like necessarily be as excited about this alternative. I didn't care enough. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the problem is yeah. I, I honestly didn't care enough about the story anymore. Um, yeah. And, and so, I think what you're trying to say is that the twist should have appeared way sooner. Yeah. We should have gotten to the twist way quicker. I think that, I think that we could have cut an hour almost out of the middle part of this film. And the way that I would do that, and and so this is where, this is my biggest problem with the film. This is your Topher Grace fan edit. Yeah, exactly. And where I have a problem with this film is in the middle act where we basically go through all of Jesus's life, like what's in the Bible with the miracles and stuff. So I actually wrote down, um, Uh and this is when we, I think this was probably around the scene where he gets baptized. And I was like, oh, are we about to get like a Martin Scorsese montage of jesus doing all of his uh miracles yeah and so i was like you know what i'm kind of down to see this like this is something that i think martin scorsese can do really well because martin that's two things martin scorsese is known for is montages and character voiceovers uh and we had the character voiceovers in here he did not do the go the montage route and he instead like it was probably maybe you could call it an extended montage but it was like 40 minutes of of him it's not an extended montage if it's 40 minutes (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) no i'm just gonna call you on that yeah yeah like yeah you can't even call it that because it's like 40 minutes of him like you know turning water into wine and then by the way the water to wine scene was hilarious in that he's just at a wedding and the guy's like we don't have enough wine. And then Jesus is like, there's wine in those barrels. And the guy's like, no, there's water. I just checked. And Jesus is like, check again. Yeah. It's like the lamest miracle. <laughs> like, we don't even see him like touch the barrels or anything. It's so like, it's and almost that, like Jesus is like pranking this guy. Well, and that's the other thing is like this film doesn't necessarily, it tells us, it doesn't show us a lot of that stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and and that's part, part of it is because of. Uh, actually, I don't know that I agree it does show a lot of stuff but i think maybe it shows a little too much just for the scope of the story i will say that like the one thing that's interesting about that middle part where he's doing the miracles is that you know even when jesus is like on his full jesus mode he still kind of he never seems quite sure of himself does he there's a scene early on where he has to preach and he does his first sermon and like People completely misinterpret his message. Right. They think he's talking about like love and kindness, and they're like, "We should eat the rich," and they all run off. He's like, "No, guys, like that's not what I meant." Like, and, well, and that's that's a, see that, and that's kind of the end of the first act. I would say is like Jesus kind of taking up the idea of potentially becoming the Messiah, right? Um, and and that piece is like the last bit of the interesting part of the first act and then getting into the second act which i didn't like yeah um, so that that 
that scene I found really interesting because, again, we get the inner monologue of Jesus like, damn it, I don't want to screw this up. Like, I could I could really screw this up with what I say and what I tell these people. Please don't let me do that, God. And then and then he says these things and, like, half of the people just run away like, let's go murder all the rich people. <laughs> some... And he's like, oh, my God, I've made a mistake. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's almost like that Life of Brian moment where, like, right. they show the people, like, too far away during the Sermon on the Mount so they can't hear what he's saying <laughs> and like the message is getting misconstrued right. where it's like oh it said uh, the cheese makers will inherit the earth <laughs> <laughs> that's a great movie yeah yeah we that is done a great any Monty Python yet we need to do that sometime soon maybe that's the only good thing that'll come from these episodes is us realizing we should do some Monty Python uh, true it's yeah. like well clearly any dairy manufacturer will inherit the earth <laughs> I'm not the messiah he's the messiah <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> biggest dickus <laughs> all right we're way off yeah 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 here. let's let's stick um, the landing here but yeah so so that there's i had those issues with the film i i also had the issue and again this probably comes back to budget honestly but like the when he's being tempted by Satan oh my god yes oh that was that was a hard scene to get through like the the effects of that scene are so bad in like 1988 so the deal is jesus or excuse me satan shows up in the form of two snakes and also a lion and then fire and then fire the fire was fine i like the idea of like a voice in a fire protecting yeah but i thought the fire looked lame oh (laughs) i thought it was fine i was more concerned about the animals yeah and and you know what and this is one of those things where it's like Maybe this should have stayed in the Bible because it, not everything translates well out of a novel. Um, the best part, though, is when um, so Jesus goes into the desert and he draws like a magic, like a warding circle around himself. Right. And then there's a scene, the second temptation, where Satan shows up as like a lion or something. Yeah. And there's a voiceover just being like, no, nah, Jesus, it's cool. I'm like an angel or something. And then <laughs> the lion goes to step over the warding circle and then it just vanishes. Right. I was like, Okay. Like, yeah. No, it was. It, I'll be honest. It was pretty lame and pretty cheesy. Yeah. That that scene could have used a bit of a rework. Again, that's kind of again where I I really struggled with the metal part of this film. Yeah. <laughs> I did like the snakes, where it's just like I will say, you know, as much as I love Scorsese and as much as I didn't hate this movie, there are some outrageously cheesy things that happen in this movie. Right. Even like I liked Willem Dafoe, but there's. One moment in particular where he has a dream with two snakes again, and he just wakes up and he grabs his chest and he's like, what does he say? He's like, forgive me. (laughs) It's like, all right, Jesus. Like, I mean, yeah, pun intended, but. (laughs) What do you think about the scene where he rips out his heart? I was like. Was that in the Bible? That was wild. (laughs) Yeah. That was was something. That that woke me up from my starting to slumber. Actually, there's another complaint I have with this movie is, so this whole thing is. You know, Judas and other people want Jesus to take up the axe. They want him to start preaching, like, rebellion and violence and all that stuff. But Jesus wants love. But then there's kind of this thing that happens in the middle where all of a sudden he shows up to his followers and he's holding an axe. And he's like, ah, let's get him. Right. But then it's love again after that. Yeah. So I'm like, what happened here? Like, when I watch it, I'm like, did he get possessed by the devil or something? Like, is this, are we going full alternate history where this is like a failed Jesus? But then... All of a sudden, he's back to love after that. So I was like, what? Maybe I was confused and I need to watch the movie again, but I'm like, what happened here? Well, like, why are you axing all of a sudden? Yeah, I was reading about that because I actually, there was a Wikipedia page that brought me into that. And then I was reading about the backstory about that and like, like how that actually happened in the Bible because he kind of storms the temple, right? Right, yeah. Um, Which it, does happen in the Bible because yeah. they're corrupting the temple. It's become a... Yeah. A den of moneylenders. So so he like he did charge it in the temple and did a bunch of yelling and screaming. And I was and like that scene I thought that scene was actually kind of interesting. Right, and that scene makes sense because they've corrupted a place of worship. Like that would upset Jesus. Warrior Jesus. I I wrote that down, Warrior Jesus. Warrior Jesus, yeah. Um, Okay. uh, Yeah, that was weird though. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. It's uh so yeah, like I didn't hate this movie and there's a lot to say about it, but there's I do have some pretty solid complaints. Like I would have liked more of a focus on Jesus and Judas's relationship or the conflict between them. Mm-hmm. I wish they'd done more with Mary Magdalene. Yep. I agree that it like 
the movie was too long and they could have shortened a lot of it. Very uh, in the middle. And like Jesus, him, here's a question for you. And this might, here's a, this is a question I never thought I'd ask anyone, but what do you think of Jesus in this movie? So this is like again, like I've said a couple times in the first, in the deep, or sorry, in the first episode, that this is essentially a character study, and I thought that as a character study, that it it's somewhat effective at showing a person struggling to either you know live an average life or live a Jesus Christ life. Jesus, yeah, like, I mean like the most famous person ever, or you know, just an average family man kind of life. And that that story to me is very interesting. And the end of this film where it does explore that in more detail and it says, okay, what if Jesus did just choose to be like average? And and I again, I, I thought all of that was really interesting. I thought Willem Dafoe's portrayal for the most part was actually pretty compelling and interesting. I guess it's kind of like this is every man Jesus. Yeah. It's like imagine if you're just out there living your life and God tells you you have to go be the Messiah. Like right. Jesus kind of he goes kicking and screaming to the finish line. Like he almost he really doesn't want to be the Messiah. Right. So but that's the Jesus that we need, damn it. <laughs> I guess a Jesus who really would prefer like really It's not I, the Jesus we want, but it's the Jesus we needed. One thing I wrote in my notes, by the way, I forgot to bring my notes, but I did prepare notes. But um it's like this is a reluctant hero Jesus. Right. This is Jesus who one thing another thing I really And you know what? That's what I'll say about the middle part as well is that the middle part feels like, you know, Jesus has like he Jesus no longer has doubts or fears or anything. Like there's the the one he's doing all the miracles and stuff, it's like confident Jesus and me as a filthy cash who's looking cash. for an entertainment of the story of this this man who's reluctant to be what he's going to be. I thought that was much more entertaining in that sense. And then yeah. when they brought it back, when they were like, oh, but this is still the Jesus that you know and love. Yeah. I was like, yeah, but that wasn't the story that you were telling. And you've kind of, you've kind of slightly like you were going one way and then you kind of pulled back to do the middle part to tell like the actual story of Jesus. And I was like, that wasn't really what you were doing. And now like this feels totally off almost for me. I don't know if I'd agree fully. I get where you're coming from. I don't know. If I, he never seemed fully... It almost Jesus to me always kind of like like I said. There's that moment where he resurrects Lazarus, and he almost seems baffled that it actually worked. Right. I don't know that he was ever fully confident in his own Jesus abilities, but I'm I'm mostly thinking of the wine scene where he's like, "Go check it again, man." Yeah, that was a little weird, but <laughs> there's one thing I want to bring up because I noticed it is I'm wondering like there's a lot of different moments in the movie where Jesus looks at someone and says, "Don't leave me alone." Right. Like, please don't leave. And, like, it happened enough times that I started noticing. But, like, there's a lot of different moments where, like, he's afraid or something. And he's just like, please don't leave me. Like, Mm -hmm. there's a scene early on with Judas where they're going somewhere. I forget. But Jesus is like, don't leave me alone tonight. And they cuddle up in each other's arms, which is totally heteros. Uh, Just something bros do i guess but (laughs) when you're in the desert you gotta share warmth yeah i guess hey what are you gonna do right so i don't know there's even like in the end like with the guardian angel i think even she says like he says to her or she says to him like i won't leave you alone or he says like please don't leave me like right and it happens so many times i'm like what is they what are they trying to say here like is this jesus i don't know did you notice that I, I guess I did, but I, I didn't think about it all that much. So I don't know if I have too much to discuss in that sense. Like, I don't know if I know what they were going for with that. Like if they were just trying to show him as being, I don't want to say cowardly, but a little cowardly. But there's, yeah, I, I almost need to watch it again to like think about that. But it's almost like this is, Jesus doesn't want to be left alone in this movie. And, you know, I'm just speculating here based on what you're saying. It, maybe it's trying to portray jesus in the human light of needing human interaction and you know if if jesus is the messiah there's no there's really nobody else on earth who's he can relate to and yeah. his counterpart and so if it's just him it's it's a fear of being alone at the top almost in a sense maybe yeah but i just thought that was interesting how many Actually, I watched, I made my mom watch this movie with me. And even she pointed out, she's like, he says that a lot, doesn't he? Like, don't leave me alone. Mm-hmm. 
Anyways, um, that's all I had to say about it. Oh, what did you think about the dialogue in the film? I thought it was almost Shakespearean in a sense, but in like a very stilted way. Thought it was a little cheesy and yeah. over the top. It was very um I hate to say this, it was almost a little Star Wars prequely. Okay. Yeah, like mm-hmm. yeah, I agree that there were definitely some moments that felt like a hit like an old-timey soap opera. Yeah, it, it was probably one of the weakest aspects of the film, I think. Like it wasn't necessarily compelling dialogue all the way through and that is definitely a detriment to the film and and especially in a film that has some major pacing issues and some length issues like if you're not telling compelling and and this is maybe the trifecta and i'm talking a little bit effects and filming here but you know with a with a low budget and using like minimalistic set pieces and set design you have to sell the film on you gotta you gotta do something yeah, yeah on like emotion and and on dialogue and the dialogue was definitely not hitting all of the the beats for me and i guess like that's always kind of the challenge with like fantasy or historical things is you can't use modern day dialogue you have to use kind of like antiquated dialogue but you can't make it sound cheesy and that's the tightrope that again a lot of fantasy and historical dramas have to walk but i've seen it done way better than in this movie in a sense yes but like you know i could also compare this to the one of the most famous plays of all modern plays of all time hamilton which takes a very modern approach to a subject of i think the 1700s right oh Um, does it okay and so you know if 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 that's the way you want to tell the story, you can do that. You just um, got to commit. Yeah, you just got to commit to it. And I think they were slightly committing to that in the sense that the the actors who were portraying the Jewish people and the actors who were playing the Romans as as New York uh, actors and British actors, basically. I don't remember any moment, though, where a character, for those of you who don't know, I've written a couple fantasy novels, and I'll have editors come back to me sometimes circling things like, well, you can't say that. That's a modern word, or this is like modern slang. Wow, I don't. that's pretty detailed. Yeah, right? But like, I don't remember any moment in this movie specifically where someone came forward and said something where I was like, no, like, that's doesn't fit yeah that doesn't fit so like they did a good job in that sense but looks like meat's on the menu boys (laughs) i mean that's fine that's i mean that's poetry but uh i don't remember any moment where it was like yo jesus what are we doing or like yo jesus how it is (laughs) like (laughs) we gonna get these romans or what (laughs) but uh you know what i'm trying to say but yeah yeah this movie is interesting deeply flawed Yes, just like the, the, the protagonist heart was himself. There to make this movie, but it was deeply flawed. Do you know that Roger Ebert put this on his great movies list? I saw that, and we were going to talk about that in uh, Legacy, but we can talk about it now. All right. I was quite shocked by that. I was too. I I had to double check. Uh, <laughs> I checked in multiple sources because I, yeah. I had to know that like, you just couldn't believe it. I, yeah, I, yeah. I had to. I had to verify it myself in several sources. I think I looked at literally Roger Ebert's website, Wikipedia, IMDb, um, and I looked up. I think I googled it once more. And and you called the estate article. too. You yeah. were like, "Can you check something for yeah. me?" <laughs> but apparently, so his greatest movie list is almost 400 films long as well. Oh, is it? So okay, you know, like it. There's quite a few films on there. To be I, fair, like it's not like Roger Ebert is like the pope of movies. Like I, I've, yeah. I've disagreed with him on stuff. Yeah, he uh, famously hated Gladiator, and I love Gladiator. Yeah, he also famously really liked Star Wars Episode One. Nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not not always the like. He, he's one of the greatest critics in in a writing sense, and so sure. you can't. You, you're not always going to agree with everybody. But well, everything is subjective when you yep. get right down to it. Yeah. Well, and and here's the thing is like. I could see this appealing to a filthy, casual, older audience, maybe, who are interested in, like, a character drama. Um, I don't know that I would agree. I don't know. I Like, I'm just trying to come up with a why Roger Ebert would put this on his greatest films list. <laughs> yeah, we're all just, like, we're all baffled. Yeah. Like, hmm. To be fair, though, I think Roger Ebert was also friends with Scorsese. I think Roger Ebert even wrote a book about Scorsese. You oh, wow. might have to check that on me, but... I don't know. At the same time, like, it is all subjective, and, like, maybe this movie didn't click for us, but it will really hit hard for a lot of people, so... Yeah. 
Like, I, I think I read that some religious people really enjoy this movie uh-huh. just for what it is and what it does, but yeah. some of them also freaking and, hate and, it. And that's at the end of the day. You and I can harp on this movie all we want, but at the end of the day, like it, like you said, it is completely subjective. Like, if you like this movie, it doesn't offend me. Like, I don't no. care if you like a movie that I don't like. <laughs> There's lots more about you that offends me, but... <laughs> True. No, uh, no, no, no. But, but uh, yeah, you and I, who both really like movies, often disagree on movies that we both really like, and and vi- like the degree at which you and I like a movie, like we often very much disagree on. Yeah, there's some movies you really, really like, and I'm just kind of okay with it. Yeah, and likewise. Yeah, um, yeah and likewise. Well, I just told you to go see Bo is Afraid, knowing that you're probably really going to hate it. It's going to be funny if I walk out of that and I'm like, greatest movie ever made. Then I'll, then I'll be like, I don't know this guy as well as I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and again, like like I said in our previous episode, like just because I disliked this movie doesn't mean I hate it. And like in the one, it's, yeah, I'd almost rather a movie I have a beef with because then it's going to, the experience is going to stick with me. Right. Yeah, there's nothing worse than like a movie that's just kind of good, and you're like, "That was fine," and then you walk away. Yeah, and you let's call it the Avatar effect. <laughs> <laughs> True. In front of the camera, really, the only other point that I wanted to mention was the final shot of the film, where it kind of bleeds to white. Um, Doesn't it bleed to red? Uh, yeah, just just basically like when when the it bleeds out kind of thing sure um so that was actually not intentional um <laughs> okay. the, the actual film itself basically went faulty and that's how the shot was accidentally ended and scorsese um, just rolled with it yeah and they're like you know what that that actually works out pretty well they had no idea that that had happened until they were processing the film i would say that the title card itself kind of got me it's like hard red screen with white text over top of it right. and like this movie actually does do a lot with the color red yeah it like does. The co- there's a lot of like red mist to signify like no goodness or <laughs> what did i even no say goodness. <laughs> yeah, there's, some, there's some real no goodness going on i gotta tell you so wait till you check out michael's books the yeah, no goodness the no goodness <laughs> yeah the the no good guy in the movie no but like there's a lot of like red mist and like there's different they do a lot with the color red or like at the end when it's like Jerusalem is falling it's just like the sky is almost blood red and like like so it's it's interesting they do a lot with the color red in this movie yeah like I I really noticed it as well like when the apostles found Jesus on his deathbed like they opened the door and that the background of that like it it was obviously on a a film set sure um it's red it's very red behind them and I was like oh that kind of again that that made me think back to the opener of the film Mm -hmm. and 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 yeah it's something that is used frequently without especially with like even like the sacrifices and we see blood dripping down like yeah uh, it's very red yeah yeah i thought that was interesting too i will say and i mentioned this in the previous episode i think the most compelling piece of dialogue is his big speech about how jesus basically says fear is my god and all that stuff i thought that scene in particular was very strong but otherwise yeah the dialogue is kind of wonky all across the movie Oh, uh, the only other thing I'll say, plot, story-wise, setting, I I thought they did a pretty good job of world-building. A pretty good job. Okay. For using, like, minimal set pieces, like, the costume design all looked pretty good. Um, Like, I believed that we were somewhere in the Middle East for most of the film. It has a very... Yeah, the set... I don't know where they shot it, but they did a good job. Oh, Morocco. Yeah. Tight. They, it was apparently the conditions were not nice while they were there. Uh, <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. It looks like they're in the middle of the desert. Yep. A very rocky desert. Yep. Yeah. All right. So moving on to sequels, prequels, and reboots. So really all to talk about here is the original novel from 1955 from a Greek writer named Nikos Kazantzakis. Kazantzakis. I'm probably pronouncing that You did your wrong. best. So the the book itself was very controversial at the time, like we've already mentioned. The most of the film really is centered just around basically Jesus deciding between whether or not to be a normal person or be a 
the Messiah essentially. Right. Um, and it's about whether, whether those temptations will win over or not. And then again, basically follows like a very similar trajectory as this film where the last part of the film, like the last part of the novel, the important part of the novel that's considered really blasphemous is like Jesus living this alternative life before deciding to, uh, die on the cross. Yeah. Go back to being crucified. So, yeah. So in that sense, like because of all of this, like this, the film itself was kind of a troubled production, like Martin Scorsese uh, on, and I'm moving into effects and filming here a little bit, but Martin Scorsese basically in 1972 read the book and Barbara Hershey actually happened to be the person to give him the novel then. Who's that? Uh, she played Mary Magdalene. Oh. And so apparently Scorsese allegedly wanted to make a film about Jesus since childhood. So interesting. This, this is a, a very long-standing passion of his. You know, like I said, he received the novel, a copy of the novel in 1972 and read it. But this film doesn't come out until 1988. And part of that reason is because the film... <laughs> nobody wanted to touch it. Nobody wanted to touch it, yeah. Well, and, and when people did touch it, all the controversies started to get all these old controversies. So, so it took, it took a number of years to get into development. The script of the film itself actually uh, was in Martin Scorsese's lawyer's office for five or more years because Scorsese was afraid of the public backlash to him for this film, not unwarranted, which we'll talk about later. Um, and his lawyer also was like, you know, like, it seems like a good script, but why would you want to make this movie yeah. when, when you know what the backlash is going to be like on this one? Universal Pictures eventually agreed to allow him to do this one uh, on the condition that he made something that was more commercial later, which ultimately ended up being Cape Fear, which you and I both really enjoyed yeah. on the previous episode. And then, the so the final say of this film is, you know, they made this in, in I think, 87 um, or, or early 88, and they shot it in 58 days with only $7 million budget. Wow. Which is not, not a not lot. Not a lot. That's nothing nowadays. And in terms of days, yeah, for a yeah. three-hour film, like, basically, you got to imagine almost every scene was shot once and then just move along we got it like yeah it's actually knowing all that it's kind of a miracle the movie's watchable at all exactly like and all of that so all of that frame of reference for this film definitely helps the case of this film and and understanding some of the issues here because as well like you know basically like they were just coming up with stuff on the spot like a lot of this was improvised like a lot of these scenes were improvised like there wasn't any time to rehearse anything it kind of explains why a lot of the dialogue feels so wonky. Yeah, it's it's not it's not quite written or rewritten. Like the characters, the the actors themselves don't have any time to think about their character. <laughs> no wonder uh, Willem Dafoe looks so scared and confused the whole movie. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Scorsese's like actual comment was that uh, they worked in a state of emergency. So that that is. It, it you know what though sometimes it's it's really a coin toss because some movies shot like that turn out to be like casablanca was shot like that and it's amazing uh-huh. this movie eh, <laughs> it has well, a, it's an epic right like yeah if you're shooting a film on this kind of scale it's gonna you're gonna have to take time you're gonna have to prepare like the right kind of set pieces for this and and this is my debate is this film is considered a religious epic i don't think it's an epic like, no epic is the wrong term no, no not I, even in terms of like the set or the set pieces just in terms of scope this is very much a character drama yeah i i think i think it's much more of a character drama and and so when you consider this film in the light of a religious epic you have to compare it to ben-hur oh yeah this doesn't even come close to ben-hur exactly. this is nipping at ben-hur's heels exactly and so so it becomes an interesting film where is this marketed correctly? Is this even still being talked about and discussed correctly? I don't think so. Can you even call this a religious film? Uh, well, yeah, because it's about Jesus and his life. Yeah. And his teachings, but like... At even the though at the time, beginning, there's that disclaimer at the beginning again that says, no, 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 this is a work of fiction. Yeah, Wink. exactly. So like, it, it's a movie full of contradictions. And, and a movie even like externally full of contradictions. I will say though, this movie does make me admire Scorsese a lot more in the sense that like he was willing to risk his career 
and go through this very troubled production just for a story he was very passionate about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like talking about like the aftermath of this, like this definitely hurt Martin Scorsese's career in the short term. Like it took a few years before the studios trusted him with bigger films. Like it, it really took until he did Cape Fear again to kind of change his public image a little bit. Well, didn't Scorsese kind of have like a full blown like career resurrection in the nineties? Yeah. Like Cape Fear, Goodfellas, more stuff. <laughs> Casino after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Like he just had banger after banger after this movie yeah exactly it's almost like he just had to get it out of his system (laughs) yeah and so there's a case for this and and it's almost similar to like john carpenter's career where he makes the thing although what i'll say is the thing is a is a classic that was misunderstood at the time and yeah people hated it really actively hated it yeah um and that tanked his career and and something like this could have easily destroyed martin scorsese's career Mm -hmm. um and, and through just happenstance and, and maybe a little bit of luck or, or divine intervention by Steven Spielberg in giving him Cape yeah. Fear. That, uh, Let's call it an act of God. Yeah. <laughs> um, God was like, you did good, Marty. Yeah. <laughs> now let's give you some better films. Exactly. But anyway, so after this film came out, like there was a lot of religious groups that were threatening Martin Scorsese's life. And the guy had to hire bodyguards afterwards in public for several years after this movie came out. And that's wild to me. That is pretty wild. And imagine, again, like, look at the brass balls on Martin Scorsese that, like, you know. It was something he was passionate about and passionate about doing. And, and, you know, sometimes your passions, uh, (laughs) it's almost a reflection of this movie. Yeah, I think I saw the joke you were about to make. (laughs) I saw it in your eyes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but it's, it is similar to that. I'm just thinking about that now. But, you know, I, I was literally just picturing Jesus uh, doing his his on the Mount uh, talk. Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, yeah. And then everyone's like, let's go eat the rich. And yeah. then he's like, whoa. No, 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 no. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So Willem Dafoe, actually, after this film, because of how controversial it was for him to play Jesus, he actually turned down uh, doing any other historical epic films after this. Really? Uh, he had no interest in doing that, and and he was also concerned because there were sponsors pulling sponsorships from him. Yeah, we should say that like it's not just admirable that Scorsese took this risk. Like Everyone took a huge risk on this yeah, movie. Yeah, oh, absolutely they did. Yeah, Keitel, Willem Dafoe. Yep. So to this day, Willem Dafoe won't do historical epics? I don't think so. Huh. Which, again, fair enough. It's it's cool, though, that like nobody seemed to suffer long-term consequences for this movie. Like, we all still love Defoe, Keitel, yep. the lady. Um, Scorsese. Scorsese. Yeah, yeah. like, nobody... It, maybe they all had consequences in the short term, but they're all still... Well, and that's maybe... That's also pre-internet age, which... Also that. So so here's the, uh, another thought piece to this, too, right? Is So this is pre-internet age... Does backlash and anger last shorter or longer in the pre-internet age? I was going to say, like, I don't... Do you still see religious groups getting upset about stuff nowadays? Oh, definitely. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Why did I even say that? Um, but, uh, absolutely. Yeah, it's just, I, you know, that's not really the circle that you and I interact with, so we don't necessarily see that all the time. And I don't think you and I are also people who particularly pay a lot of attention to the news or, or CNN or Fox news or anything like that. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's us. But uh, yeah, I guess that, but I don't know. At the same time, like I think the people who I have to phrase this delicately, I remember like when um, Harry Potter came out, the Catholic church condemned it. And like when the, what's that famous thriller that came out? The Da Vinci code. Hmm. I remember a priest actually going to like a mass and a priest kind of condemning it in the sermon saying that like, no, this is not true. And this is the work of the devil himself and blah, 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 blah. Like, so I don't know. I think the audiences that if the church can, if this movie came out nowadays and the church condemned this movie, the people who would turn against it aren't the kind of people who would be interested in this kind of story anyways. Exactly. Yeah. Um. But, the, and, and again, this is back to the primer episode. Like you and I still even anyway had trouble recommending this film to people still because the film kind of is a little bit of a mess honestly because of all of the, the <laughs> that's not for religious reasons that's just for like the budget crafting reasons yeah. yeah and it wasn't because the people who were on set weren't passionate about making this film it was there was a lot of limitations and when things are controversial 
obviously a, it's a business at the end of the day and a studio doesn't want to necessarily put out a big budget for a film that it's hard to recommend a movie that's controversial and also kind of lame fumble. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say fumbles the ball in certain respects, yeah, no, but no, I no. think you just, I was using a scalpel and you just used a hammer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but. Which but, is, again, and I want to say, I don't hate this movie. I don't even think it's a bad movie. It's just kind of, it just kind of, it's not really our cup of tea. And yeah, I think it, it and I think it did certain things a little badly. Yeah. Yeah. You can still see some of the masterwork of Martin Scorsese in this film. It's just because of the budgetary issues, because of it as being a story that you and I necessarily aren't particularly interested in, it doesn't quite hit or doesn't land with us. quite pop. You yeah. know, I will say, though, if I didn't know going in that this was a Scorsese movie, I would never have guessed that he did this movie. See, and and that's where like I kind of saw some of his his handiwork in this, especially okay. with the the voiceovers and the narration, and that's what he's ex- he's excels at, like right, like okay, Goodfellas, Casino. So you recognized more of his thumbprint than exactly. I did. I did. Okay, I did. Okay, some of the brutality and the violence, like, and th- that kind of style. The scene where Joe Pesci uh, killed a waiter was pretty intense in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Other legacy bits here. So this film, when it came out, was banned or censored in a lot of places. Yeah, basically on planet Earth. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and it's actually still banned in Singapore and the Philippines. So fun, fun. fact: you and I watched a banned movie. Oh, good um, for us. I, yeah, I I'm... believe it's like I think there was a news, a movie journal that put out a top twenty-five list of most controversial movies ever, and I think this was somewhere around number six. Oh, so it's very controversial. Very controversial. Thanks yeah. for uh, putting this on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's not like we're giving this movie a ringing endorsement. <laughs> yeah. No, no. And, or chirping the people who'd like or don't like this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other interesting things to this were that the French, uh, so the, the Catholics in French, actually torched a few cinemas that were releasing the movie when it came out. Ouch. Um, and there was actually caused somebody to die. And there was other injuries because people were watching the movie when they did that. So, I mean, French gonna uh, riot, I guess, is the moral of that story. <laughs> I guess so. Um, in terms of movies that comes after this, so Martin Scorsese actually, uh, shockingly, decided to do more religious films after this. And so he actually has like a, a trilogy almost of, of religious, religious movies. Films. Yeah. Uh, so the other ones are Kundun and Kundun. Silence. Kundun? I, uh, I, you might be right. I'm not sure. Yeah. Kundun, uh, that's the one about the Dalai Lama, right? Yes, I think yeah. so. Who, even in this day and age, the Dalai Lama doing creepy, weird, controversial things. So Is the Dalai Lama creepy and weird and controversial? Oh, man, you haven't even heard that news bit? No, I haven't. You'll have to explain it to me after the yeah, podcast. Yeah, we'll talk about that after. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, uh, I've heard Silence was really good, though. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a pretty new film actually. It came out in 2016. I haven't seen it, or I, I, I honestly, I hadn't even heard of it until I was researching for this podcast. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what's. In, I think we've talked about this. Like that's what's interesting and admirable about Scorsese is he's just even into his 80s, he's just trucking along, making yeah, movies. Just does what he wants. Yeah, uh, which is good for him. You know what? That's a sign that you love your job when you're working into your 80s. Yeah, that's a really good sign. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, w- I wish I was making movies into my 80s. Instead, I'm talking about podcasts, and I'm 30. Yep. <laughs> We've still got time. Yeah, true, true. But it's running out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to get back to score really quickly. I, I thought the score of this film was actually really good. It's one of the higher points of the film for me. It's written and composed by Peter Gabriel, okay. uh, who was the lead singer of Genesis, a, a very famous band. Really? That Peter Gabriel? Yeah. Um, huh. The score fits really well into like a period piece take of this film and kind of slots us into this world of the Middle East and and this time in the, you know, 2000 years ago. And he actually had a collaboration of artists come and record different instruments for him from the Middle East, from Africa, Europe, even South Asia. Um, so that's kind of a, it's kind of a mix of instruments and it's called it's considered uh, world music is what it's called. And it's basically like non-Western instruments kind of together and in, in making song. 
Interesting. Yeah, and, and he actually was somebody who was a, a big champion of that uh, in creating this world music. Some of his but some of his like later albums actually center around this type of music. Like he really wanted to popularize these kinds of instruments and, and you know, not everything has to be a guitar, drums and a bass kind of thing, like have have all of this different stuff come to come together. And I, I thought it was pretty effective here. Yeah. Um, it, it, it almost, especially in the opening credits of this film, I, if, if I'm, I'm kind of notorious for this, uh, if there's a, if you have long opening credits and the music isn't even driving with me, then I'll just fast forward through them. Um, oh, really? I didn't know that about you. Yeah. I do that sometimes. <laughs> and it, it, like, it's a small thing probably, but in this film, I actually didn't fast forward the credits because I, I was, I was enjoying the, the opening music of this film and it, it almost made me feel like i was trying to think if i'd heard it before because it, it had a familiarity to it that i thought was interesting as well hmm. yeah that's that's my thoughts on it well cool. personal reviews and the partner factor all you to start with all right so i did not watch this with a partner i made my mom watch it with me and <laughs> uh we were both kind of just like okay <laughs> like yeah i'd give this if i had to give it like a number score i'd probably give it like a 6.5 out of 10 mm-hmm. And yeah, I mentioned the be- the gripes I have and that it's kind of hard to recommend this movie, but I didn't mind it so much. I didn't mind it and I'm kind of glad I watched it. That's not exactly a ringing endorsement, but that's my endorsement. That's <laughs> like, fair. I I want there's going to be a DVD someday with a, or it won't be DVD that it'll be like hollow tape where if like my review it'll be like Michael Segan. I'm kind of glad I watched it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was not a fan of this one. I'm not even interested in character studies usually, honestly. They're, okay. This is not usually movies for me very often. Sure. Although, like, I guess The Green Knight is kind of a character study, but it's also wrapped in, like, Arthurian lore, and it's also kind of like a like borderline a horror movie uh, in the way yeah. it's shot. I mean, s- swords elevate a movie for me, like a full letter grade, too. Yeah, so. true, true. So that, that movie, uh, like, is my comparison and i i really love that movie i really like ben hur a lot ben hur was great again you you kind of already said it like we've talked we've griped on this film quite a bit and and talked about the, our issues with it talk I, some mad shit yeah like yeah i i don't think i'll return to this one ever again i think this is no question this goes to the lowest of my martin scorsese filmography i haven't seen all of his films but i'm pretty high on on most of his films and two or three of them would make my top 10 list like it's it doesn't even hold a candle to something like Goodfellas, so so that's kind of where I sit on this one. Jess was done after about twenty minutes. She yeah, like, I'm uh, surprised she lasted that long. Yeah, she was like, "This movie sucks." I'm going <laughs> to bed. Uh, I can vividly picture your fiance saying that. <laughs> so yeah, definitely not a movie for her either. Kind of talked to my parents about this one quickly too, and they were like, "Why are you doing that for the podcast?" <laughs> and i blamed you <laughs> like um, it's that michael <laughs> it's uh, that guy you made me make friends with when i was a kid <laughs> yeah they're like we've seen it but it's not something that we would... oh your parents have actually seen it they have seen it actually oh yeah. i didn't know that yeah and then we got into debate about um the big lebowski because my dad's like i've never seen that what is that movie and i was like how have you not seen my favorite comedy of all time you've never shown your dad the big lebowski i i feel like i have but apparently yeah not so we got into that debate and <laughs> I guess we need to do the big Lebowski and invite Al Goff on to talk about it. <laughs> you know, I can I can tell you how he would say he would go, Yeah, that was a weird one. That, that is all he would say. For That's two the hours classic uh, dad response. Yeah. No, it's it's that or oh, it was different. Yeah, yeah, it was different. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one hundred percent. You know, you've entered dad status when you comment on something like, "Oh, that was different." That was different. Like, yeah. it certainly was. <laughs> you know what? That was different. Sometimes mean it was really good though. Does it? I, I feel like so. whenever my dad said something was different, it meant he didn't like it. <laughs> my, I think it depends. Some like when my dad says that was really weird. It's sometimes a little bit of admiration. Like, you know what? I wasn't expecting you to go to that weird place. He he respects the audacity of it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, yeah, anyway, that's that's it for our discussion of temptation. It's funny how a lot of being a son is just trying to interpret your dad's various (laughs) sayings and what they actually mean. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I always think about... Bo Burnham's uh, song. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And how he's like, and that's the deepest, deepest conversation. conversation we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Bo Burnham is inside. Have you ever seen that? If you've never seen that, I would recommend that way over to this. Yeah. Not so, even close. Like years from now, they'll be like, do you remember that episode of uh, Vintage Cinema Rewind where they talked about The Last Temptation of Christ for an hour and a half and then they recommended Bo Burnham at the end? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This will be one of our weirder ones. Uh, no, this will be a different episode. <laughs> true. So, upcoming, we have June we're coming up on. Um, It looks like... We are doing foreign films. We got Jason's Choice in there. And then we'll see. We got we June is a longer month in terms of uh when we post stuff, so we actually have a third thing to, Ooh, la la. Uh, to do in there. So we'll see we'll see what we get up to then. See we'll see what we get up to. Yeah. But anyway, that's us. And we'll see you next time for hopefully a, a far less controversial movie that I, I have to that I have a feeling through. you guys may never hear from me again. <laughs> <laughs> In which case, it has been a pleasure.